From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, how David and Goliath can team up on climate innovation. NG's Renewables Chief talks about scaling clean power. Andrew Revkin on communicating climate change and how to turn critics into collaborators. We're all in this together this week on 350. It's November 8th, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from not so far away, so near yet so far, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather, where are you? Uh, hello, I am checking in today from Half Moon Bay, the lovely Half Moon Bay, California, which is just shy of you. I forget how many miles you can tell me because I'm not local, but uh, I'm on the lovely Pacific Ocean, absolutely extraordinary view. Uh, but uh, I'm here for a conference. Yeah, so you're about 40 miles from where I'm sitting in Oakland, uh, but uh, talk about what are you doing? What's the conference? What's going on? So I, <laughs> I have some friends from my old, uh, my, my former life, if you will, in information technology journalism, and I, I mean, I'm, I still cover te information technology today, but I was really in that industry, uh, and there's a, an organization called Constellation Research, and they have a connected enterprise conference every year, this is uh, something that they do where they talk to people that manage the CI, you know, the IT strategies of very big companies and, you know, debate things like artificial intelligence and security and privacy. And um, I know the uh, one of the chief analysts, Sarah, because I do a, a thing called Disrupt TV every once in a while. It's like a a, uh, internet debate on on technology issues, and uh, I was invited to do something live. So this week, I, I had the opportunity to talk with uh, him and and do that that live and talk about artificial intelligence and green technology, my favorite topics, and then also a little bit about my book. So it was kind of kind of cool. I got to be a speaker. I was not a moderator. I was a speaker. Yeah. <laughs> it's always always a different experience. It's weird. Um, it's very weird. <laughs> and you're going to be on this coast uh, through most of next week as well. I'll see you in the office. And then I'm headed down to the BSR conference in San Jose, not too far from where you are. And, uh, and then a uh, day trip, day trip. To, yeah, or <laughs> overnight trip to New Orleans, uh, yeah. where I'm speaking at the uh, IATA, that's the International Air Transport Association's Aviation Fuel Forum. So uh, talking about uh, what does it take to make aviation sustainable a uh, big topic these days and you know what with uh, flight shaming and uh, and other issues um, spectacular <laughs> growth of aviation it's forecast um, how the heck does that not mm. break the bust the budget on carbon mm. that's uh, becoming um, increasingly an issue of concern not yet feeling existential in the industry but they're starting to look at you know how what do we do how do we do this because um the forecasts uh, from a carbon perspective are not so good. So enough about the future. Let's look at the past and specifically the week in review. <laughs> so 
So let's start this week with a piece by Bob Langer, editor-at-large at GreenBiz and former vice president of sustainability at McDonald's. This week, his TED Talk got published online. We have a link to that. And, and he wrote a piece that sort of parallels that story around how to work with your critics as a company. And this is something from which he has vast and admirable experience in his uh, 25 or so years at McDonald's, where you know, among my favorite stories is how he ended up uh, rafting down the Amazon with Greenpeace to learn about deforestation, organizations that were beating up his company. And, and he's been a, an advocate for engaging your critics. And this is not just engaging them, but this is where he says uh, it's not just about engaging them. This is how your adversaries can become your allies. So uh, I love this piece. He's, he has a, a number of, of insights that he's learned along the way, and it syncs with his book that he recently uh, wrote about his 25 years at McDonald's. And uh, I, I just really appreciate what he brings to the table in terms of the the honesty and candor with what does it take to work with people who just don't like you as a company? Yeah, I, I always found that as a as a journalist, as an, as an editor, that, that some of our critics are, we became our most useful um, allies, like to, to, to Bob's point, because they help you understand what you're not doing right um, and where you could, where you can do better. And if you do do better, if you do make positive changes or at least honest changes, they can become your biggest allies and advocates, right? They, they talk about how you're so responsive your company is, um, and I, I really appreciate that. I mean, I've had so many experiences in the past as a journalist where that's happened to me. And I can just, I totally related to that. Um, I love his story about Temple Grandin, the animal rights act activist. Uh, and I, I didn't, frankly, I didn't know much about her. I started reading about her after we uh, were, were fortunate enough to uh, organize her as a speaker at the upcoming GreenBiz 20. I'm so excited to see her, but I just, her story is fascinating. Um, just the, the, the struggles that she had uh, becoming what she is. She has autism um, and, and her ability to communicate with animals became such a, a huge uh, part of what she is, right? Her, her career, and that was her, her calling, if you will, but um, the other thing I really appreciate in, in Bob's piece is his focus on persistence, because that's just one of the things that I know that gets me down. I, I, it's not that I want instant gratification, but I do get tired of beating my head against the wall when, when I don't see progress. And it does really take persistence in a lot of these things. It's the, you know, the, the, the old uh, adage of, you know, two steps forward, one step backward. And, and you, you just have to keep on it in order to keep that progress moving. And the, the, the moment you get frustrated or, or you let up is when you slip. Yeah. Well, let's move on to a sort of related uh, piece uh, by Ben Soltoff um, around David and Goliath, how they can team up on climate innovation. This is about big companies uh, teaming up not with NGOs, but with innovators. And uh, this is, comes out of uh, some sessions that he attended at Verge 19 a couple weeks ago. Um, and, uh, but, you know, what's the role for startups in the big uh, corporate world uh, in terms of you know, bringing in innovation for a long time? 
big companies largely said, you know, not invented here, we're not interested. And of course, over the past, um, certainly decade, probably two decades, companies have realized that they don't have all the good ideas. And, and a lot of that's happening in the Silicon Valleys of the world, and that they ignore those at their peril. And, and so I think this, but how you do it is challenging. And, and this is, uh, I think, a little bit more about what Ben got into in this piece and some of the insights that he saw from, as I said, a number of sessions across the Verge program that had to do with innovators and big companies. Yeah, he actually spent yeah a lot of time in the showcase at Verge. I, I, he didn't actually go to his life at Verge was in, was in the showcase and with all these startups and, and, and watching the presentations there, which is it's just a wonderful program. So the showcase was part of the Interconnect Expo area where we had uh, dozens of, of, of exhibitors and there was a little stage or set where uh, companies would give pitches and interact with the audience, whoever they were. And uh, Ben, as you said, spent a lot of time listening to those and yeah, it's fun stuff. So, I, and I know most of the focus is on startups, but I, I actually sometimes have trouble with that word because, you know, when is a startup not a startup? If, is it, if a company is 10 years old, are they a startup? <laughs> I just, they're certainly entrepreneurial, right? If they're not, if they're still working on an idea that hasn't quite made it into the mainstream yet. So, so I try to, t- I try to think of it as entrepreneurs and, and, larger organizations working together. But he does a really good job of, of talking about the dance that, that you have to play a little bit, right? Because you don't want to just hand over the intellectual property. And there's always this fear that you go into a company and they're going to steal your ideas and you're going to be left with nothing. And so that's the fear that I know many, many uh, organizations have when they approach a larger company. But but I think that um, what what the point of the meetings at Verge were to help understand how do you do this the right way? How do you protect yourself? What are they looking for? What, you know, what's going to appeal to a larger company? I mean, then also how to keep their attention. I love the sort of uh, <laughs> the flirting analogy that, that Ben uses here towards the end. Uh, one of the founders actually told, told him that she, she likes when she works with a corporate, uh, a corporate executive of some sort, um, who's who's uh, she's trying to attract? You know, it's like, is it a bad, is it a good boyfriend or a bad boyfriend? And are, you know, is it someone who's going to commit or follow through? And you know, and and when do you get attention? Well, by flirting with competitors. So I just love that analogy. It's true. I mean, it's just you you do want to as a, an entrepreneur be be loyal, but but you know what? If if one company isn't giving you the right attention, you know, don't hit your wagon just to one organization. Wow, there are so many things I could do with that analogy, oh, but, but I'm, I, yes. I'm not going to go there. Let's go on to a third story here that uh, you did uh, an interview with the uh, head of renewables for Engie. Is it, this yeah. is the woman that you interviewed at the uh, Climate Week in New York on stage at the opening so, ceremony? This is not the woman I interviewed, and this, but this is great. I mean, that's something I will address here. So the CEO of Engie in France, the entire organization is a woman, Isabelle Cocher, the CEO of the North America division is also a woman, Winnell Avis Hewitt, and she also runs their renewables on a global basis. So she, another very powerful woman in the uh, the power, if no pun intended, sector. Um, and I had the great uh, great fortune to speak with her uh, uh, recently, uh, a very extensive interview. And the reason that I was interested in the interview with, in the first place is that in the North America division of NG, they have basically said that they're going to add nine gigawatts of renewable energy between now and 2021. 
um, they had, you know, as a, as, a, as a whole, the company had about 24 and a half gigawatts of renewables. Um, and mind you, that includes a lot of hydro. So like 16 gigawatts of that is hydro. But it's a, it's a large piece of their business. And nine gigawatts is not nothing to sneeze at. That's no, a that's, lot of capacity. That's a lot. And that's just yeah. in North America or is that globally? Uh, no, you know what? That's it, that's globally. But um, the I think predominantly in North America, though, because the other part of that that declaration is that at least half of that is going to come from power purchase agreements from either companies or public sector entities like cities and universities and hospitals. So, you know, it's just not something they're building on their own to sell to other utility to sell utilities necessarily. It's things that they're doing in concert with with large with large companies. So it was just a one of those, wow, okay, that's a pretty cool strategy. And they've done some really big deals recently. Um, you know, I'll get into one in a moment, but it's just a fascinating interview. She's a she's a got a, a degree in chemical physics, uh, master's degree in molecular chemistry and energy. So she's she's a very fascinating woman, um, nuclear power, et cetera. And she's she does uh, some work as uh, she's done some work at the World Bank as well. So it's just an intriguing conversation about not just the renewables, but also some of their aspirations in uh, what she calls green gas. I mean, they, they're a very big natural gas company, uh, and they've got a lot of technologies that they're working on to to bring that over into um, greener versions um, of 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 natural gas, whatever they happen to be, biomethane, uh, hydrogen, <clears throat> etc. Energy storage is, is sort of a teeny but growing area for them. Just a a great uh, Greek interview and, and lots of insights as well. So, so you mentioned hydro. What are the principal renewable energy sources that energy is going to be leaning on? Well, of course, wind and solar, but 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 intriguingly, uh, also offshore wind. So it's something that we're hearing about more in the United States. In New Jersey, it's actually a big deal because there's some massive offshore wind projects being being uh, built there and now recently approved. And what, what they're really trying to focus on, and remember I just said that they hope that um, you know, half of that capacity will be going to these, these large-scale power purchase agreements. Well, offshore wind's pretty darn expensive right now because technology is pretty early. Um, so they're working on things like floating uh, turbines and, um, and so forth. And they're really focused on making sure that the cost is going to come down. Um, and, and so forth. So uh, we talked a little bit about the incentives for that. So of course, the, they're interested in, in what's going to happen with the production taxes um, in, in the United States and elsewhere. Um, also very, very closely focused on whether there will be some kind of price on carbon and so forth. But offshore wind's a big development area for them in, in concert with EDP Renewable. So they have a joint venture mm-hmm. focused on that. So you've got Clipper 2 to play. Let's, uh, what do you got? So here, the, the one thing I really also wanted to hone in on, and that's what you'll hear for, from in a moment, is that they just did this very intriguing partnership with Microsoft. Uh, about, it was a little bit earlier this fall. And what made this particular power purchase agreement different was that it was not just a very sizable contract, about 230 megawatts, but that it included both solar and wind. And what makes that unique is um, the fact that that can let, that, that lets Microsoft say that they've got 24 by 7 coverage. If you just do a solar PPA, clearly the sun isn't shining at night and you're not always going to have the benefit of being able to say that 
you know, the renewables are powering your, your operations unless you have, for example, energy storage or if you have a wind contract that you can use to balance during the time when, when the, the solar resources aren't available. So I did this big deal with Microsoft in, in, in September. And, um, but this clip you're going to hear from it now is her talking about sort of the nature of that contract, how it came about, and why it's important. So first, uh, Texas is the biggest state in terms of uh, wind uh, assets. So uh, it's, it, there are lots of wind developments in Texas. And uh, what we see in Texas is a very good complementarity between wind and solar. The profiles of production of wind and solar are extremely complementary in Texas. So that's, that's something uh, that can enable, provide uh, solutions mixing the two technologies. So just maybe to give you one illustration, when we started the discussion with Microsoft, they wanted to green the energy consumption of one of its of data centers in San Antonio, and they wanted the supply to come from new capacities and to, to be produced as close as possible from their data center. And finally, they wanted to have something reliable 24-7. So you see the conditions were new capacities first, second, close to the consumption, and third, reliable. So that was not easy, and so we came up with a very innovative solution, and it's 100% green and 100% Texas, coming from Texas, Texan solution. So uh, what we propose is that Microsoft, they will purchase the majority of the output from a new uh, wind farm, Las Lomas, that will be located in the Star and Zapata counties in the south of Texas, and also from a solar park, it is called the Anson Solar Center Park, which will be built in Johns County, Central Texas. And both assets, when you look at their profiles of production, they are extremely complementary, and we will manage the remaining intermittency. And all in all, we will operate the project that will come online in 2020. And if you look at the profile that combining the two assets that we will sell to Microsoft, it's completely 24-7 solution. So, I mean, this is extremely innovative. This is uh, something that is local, so less impact on the grid, and that's something that we should look at because as soon as we will have more uh, renewable coming into the market, there are some questions around intermittency and around uh, grid um, consequences. So having something where you can locate renewable close to the point of consumption with new capacities and mixing different profiles of production of renewable, I think that's the future. What, what I see in, in the next stage is combining wind, solar, plus storage. And that's something also that we are working on. We've acquired one company uh, doing ele uh, electricity storage and I think that's, that's also something that we will have to add uh, within our solutions. So what's intriguing about that arrangement is that they're hoping to do more. And that actually go, brings your full circle back to the hydro, because it turns out that their hydro lets them help their customers make this claim. So while they're not going out and thinking about doing a lot of new hydro projects, that capacity really helps them offset 
um, the other the other sort of intermittent power sources that they have. So it's it's a great renewable story. And so I think you're going to hear a lot about hybrid contracts from NG. Just a fascinating company to keep watching uh, in the 12 and 18 months ahead. Last week, I was in Washington, D.C., and while I was there, I attended an event at the World Bank. And at that event, I ran into an old friend of mine, Andrew Refkin, who's a veteran environmental journalist, author, educator. Uh, you may know him for the 15 years. He wrote a column for the New York Times called Dot Earth. Um, Andy's uh, somebody I encountered from time to time, and we hadn't talked in a long time, so it was a good chance to catch up, and he was nice enough to do that on tape. I started out by asking him about his new job at Columbia University. Well, this is like 35 years I've been in journalism, mainly. Uh, I've written about climate change since 1988, um, since before the IPCC and the UNFCCC and everything else, and I done some pretty effective reporting over the decades um, on the basic science. I went to Greenland, I went to the North Pole, I've been to the Amazon, wrote a book about the burning when it was way worse than it is now, 1989, 90. And uh, at the same time, in the 2000s, the aughts, I guess, young people <laughs> call them, I stumbled into the limits of journalism. I realized, um, I started reporting about behavioral science and social science. I should have been interviewing people like, uh, you know, Dan Kahane at Yale a decade earlier, because I suddenly realized, oh my God, there's this other science which says that more information mostly doesn't matter most of the time. And as a journalist, you know, I was in my 50s thinking, oh my God, what do I do with the rest of my life? Information doesn't matter uh, when something gets contentious. And the more I dug in on that frontier, the more I realized I had to look at the whole pipeline. What, when does information matter? When doesn't it matter? So that was like 2007. And what happened in 2007? Social media, Twitter. And suddenly it felt really exciting again in a new way, the internet and connectivity. That's when I started my blog, 2007.earth. Um, and I had readers all around the world. A, a guy living in the Amazon became kind of a guest voice on Dot Earth. I'm thinking, this is so great, you know? And it, it's here. The, in the early 20th century, these two characters were talking about the newosphere, the idea that we were building a planet of the mind. And I was totally sucked in by that idea. You know, I saw the limits of old journalism. Here was this way to connect the whole world around issues like climate change and resilience, innovation. And then I saw, oh my God, the noise factor. You know, suddenly this information environment I, I was seeing was dividing us more than ever. It was creating so much noise, it's hard to pick out the reality. It took away the old Walter Cronkite mode that we, you and I grew up with, you know. That's the way it is. <laughs> right. Walter, you know, signing off, telling you the state of the world. You didn't actually have to think as a news consumer. And we all had the same comfort meal of information. It was either Walter, John Chancellor, a couple other people. And then finally there was a woman and finally there was an African-American. But there were still these like avuncular, reassuring characters. And now that you have this buffet like the one at the World Bank where we happen to be. You know, we, you can pick out whatever information suits your predisposition. So then I became depressed again, not in a physical way, but like, oh my God, now what do I do? And I was at Pace University for a while teaching a course that I called Blogging a Better Planet. 
how do we do this? How can you look at this new environment and find ways to tip the balance toward betterment? And so, and since then, I've been at National Geographic, where I was building new grants, especially aimed at developing country journalists. So we have at least some capacity to tell important stories in countries where both the vulnerability is greatest and the vulnerability to the biosphere is greatest. And that's been great. I'm still on a committee there that reviews grants every three months. The grants are great for anybody, anybody out there over 18 uh, who has some idea related to inquiry or storytelling related to these big issues can get a grant. But I moved to Columbia, which has the Earth Institute, an amazing quarter-century-old effort to create a cross-departmental, interdisciplinary, campus-wide focus on sustainable development and sustainability and resilience and the like. And I had been reporting on output from the Earth Institute for many years, but now I'm there to build a new center there focused on that big question. How do you make information matter in this environment? Well, it's interesting because right now I see the number of big media organizations, including the New York Times and Bloomberg and The Guardian, who are beefing up their climate-related teams. I mean, you can't not cover all that's going on in the planet right now. So there is this growth of, of um, coverage. What are you thinking about that? Is that not the right way to communicate? I don't think there's any one right way. I think what The New York Times has been doing lately and The Washington Post and to some extent, The Guardian, I have some issues with The Guardian, um, have been telling the story of climate change and the policy inertia and energy challenges very effectively. But I think my perception is they're mostly feeding the same smallish cluster of readers who are already engaged with this. People who retweet hundreds of times these important stories are not really reaching the full span of people in the world who would you'd want to be on board if you want to change wildfire policy in the West, you know? And wildfire policy in the West is mostly not about climate change. It's about community change. It's about building so much, so rapidly into zones of deep danger with fuel and fire suppressed for so long. And with climate change drying everything out and having that is a disaster. But most of the reporting I've seen, or even lately in these good institutions around fire, has the tendency to focus on the climate component instead of the how do we get out of this mess component. And it's, it, there's ways to address these stories that if you tick back to the primordial question for humans, which is, what is it about the climate system that I care about? What do I care about? And when you think about that, what makes climate matter? Well, it's, you don't want it to be unpredictable. You don't want it to screw up your crops or your flood your house or blow down your building or, or put you now in a case of having no new, no new sea level that you can count on for the rest of humanity's experience for the next thousands of years. So how does this project at Columbia University change that? I'm just, there, there are toolkits we're gonna develop, we are developing around ways to break down big questions into actionable ones. In other words, reducing vulnerability. Any community on the planet, you can argue forever about climate policy or how big a carbon tax or how much money should go to nuclear versus renewables. Those are really important questions, but they don't change the risk factor on the ground in any community for decades. And in the meantime, as I've been tweeting actively, California is building 600,000 more houses in zones of high wildfire risk now. 
That's happening in the next 50 years, 40 years in California, right? Actually, 30 years by 2050. So that's a question we can, we, you can address, you can get traction on in any community. What's wrong with our zoning? What's wrong with our building codes? And that can build, once you build community coherence co around one aspect of this problem, it's easier to sustain that conversation and talk about energy futures and legacy issues, like how, how much do we want to work on changing energy norms? But if you bundle it all as this big, grand climate crisis, whether you call it climate crisis or climate emergency or climate breakdown, it's big and amorphous and has no action points. So the Akita at Columbia is to use data and, and discourse to shape more productive approaches. One thing that I'm really excited about, I didn't even know existed, one of the um, Earth Institute affiliate centers at Columbia has something called the Difficult Conversations Laboratory. Now, Joel, well, I think like, most marriages many, could use that. Well, most marriages, but Joel, how many discussions have you led where you just wished there was people there who knew the anatomy of a dispute and how do you get out of it? There are people who, this is a science too, but it's not a science I learned as a, a climate journalist. And it's a science I think we can help spread the gospel of better discourse being a path toward a, a impact along with better stories. You know, there's always room for storytelling, but this is a different, uh, this is a different thing. So really briefly, what, uh, if you get this right, what, what will happen as a result? Well, uh, right now, we have a very modest grant right now from uh, foundation to help build uh, capacity in developing countries. There's, there's a network of female journalists in developing countries. It's been developed for several decades. I can't be more specific right now. But we have a little seed funding to work with this distributed co group of journalists to provide data to provide data-driven insights into climate vulnerability, drought patterns, the uh, ENSO cycle, uh, the El Nino and the like, so that journalists on the ground who are already effective can build in climate effective journalism as well. That's just one little example. And we also, we did just get a grant. We're shared a, sharing in a grant with Climate Central, which is a fantastic template already, and which is moving into partnership journalism which is so different than the old New York Times model, which is still good, but this model is Climate Central has very skilled staff who work on data, turning data into story, and we're working with them on a coastal uh, adaptation and resilience reporting initiative in the New York area with WNYC, the radio station as well. And that's, again, it's, it's incorporating the scientific expertise at Columbia's Earth Institute and the data expertise mapping with Climate Central and with uh, WNYC and a couple of other partners, The Guardian actually as well, in creating a collaborative approach to journalism on this issues. Now, this is the other cool thing, you know, if media markets, yeah, media markets don't mesh with the geometry and the geography of climate problems. You know, every coast in America faces sea level rise, but the LA Times writes about California aspects, the New York Times writes about our region, sometimes globally, having a template where you can build that capacity everywhere is really a cool cool possibility too. Lots of cool possibilities and uh, this was decidedly not a difficult conversation. Andy <laughs> Revkin is the former New York Times reporter and uh, now at Columbia University Earth Institute. Thanks Andy. Keep on keeping on.
And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned in this week's episode. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish a different one Monday through Friday, five newsletters in all. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters, and you'll find out more about them. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.